Good morning. I hope uh, this Christmas weekend is going well for you. I have to admit this morning that I am a longtime fan of the Christmas morning surprise video, uh, particularly of little children. You know, I love the whole spectrum. I love the little kids staring at the present in complete shock that they got that thing that they wanted, you know, that and they, and they can't move and everybody around them is laughing because they are completely stunned. Of course, I love the electric surge, you know, reaction. You know, like, you know, somebody plugged them into the socket. I can't believe it. And of course, the complete and utter meltdown is always a fan favorite. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, and you're not sure whether they're happy or upset. You know, of course, secretly, one of my favorite videos is of the sibling who's like, why didn't I get that, right? You know, the kids reacting in whatever enthusiastic way and the siblings like, hey, how come they got a $400 present and I got a tie, you know, or whatever the case may be. Yes, Christmas can sometimes bring its surprises, but for most people who at least go to church around Christmas, these stories that we find about the birth of Jesus don't seem particularly surprising to us. And so part of our task as we look at God's Word together is to see the aspects of this story that are still amazing and should amaze us still regardless of how many times that we have heard them. I, because, uh, you know, this is a special day, I decided instead of my normal two or three points that we'll have five. Now, for people... For people who know me, generally the more points there are, well, the longer the sermon is, but it, it probably won't be uh, the case. No, as I looked at this text, I thought of five things that I want us to point out. And hopefully as we think about them, we will see how fresh and surprising the story of the birth of Jesus can be. So we're going to look at five things. One, we're going to look at the undeserved uh, gift. Secondly, we're going to look at the unexpected recipient. Thirdly, the ending kingdom. Uh, Fourthly, the unprecedented arrival, and lastly, the unconditional response. Uh, and yes, it took me so long to think about five points that all begin with un. I told my wife, if you're a Seven Up fan, this is the unsermon. So, anyway, that's an old ad campaign. Most people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. First of all, I want us to talk about this undeserved gift. Notice how the angel uh, greets Mary in this story. Uh, when he comes to her, he hails her. And what does he say? Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The very first thing he says is that you are the recipient of the favor that is the grace of God. And notice he says it a second time in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The very first part of this story that's important for us to recognize is that this encounter, whether familiar or unfamiliar, is a story about someone getting something that they don't deserve. Mary says, you're not receiving this because of your excellence. You're not receiving it because of your behavior. You're not receiving this announcement and the blessing that will come from it because you have earned it, but because God has shown his favor on you. 
in saying this, this is an echo of uh, stories in the Old Testament. For instance, when we read the story about how wicked people had become after the fall of man in the book of Genesis, it says that Noah comes along and that he had found favor with God. Noah was a recipient of God's grace. Or Moses, when he's leading the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, he says, we cannot go from here unless you are with us because how else will people know that we have your favor, your grace? So when the angel comes, the angel is saying, Mary, you are standing in a long and prestigious line of people who have received something undeserved. And this is what's going to happen to you. You are going to give birth to a child who will change the world. That's a good thing for us just to stop and think about momentarily as we come into the Christmas season. That while we think about Christmas as sort of uh, one of those things that just happens every December, and we think about the, all the accoutrements of Christmas as something that is just part and parcel of it, we need to understand that Christmas, the coming of Jesus in this world, comes to people who do not deserve it. I know that's complicated for us because this is the season where we give gifts to one another. And, and I don't know about you, but oftentimes I feel like the whole gift giving process uh, that we've taken the idea of gift out of it altogether. Does it not feel like an economic expectation to you? Right? You know, somebody, uh, somebody gives you a gift and you think, oh man, I have to give them a gift. Because, of course, we can't just get an undeserved gift from someone else. Or perhaps your parents, like my parents, uh, weeks before Christmas begin asking me for a list of things that I want, which, to be, honestly, uh, to be honest with you, is an economically efficient way of doing it. Uh, that way we don't waste resources on things that never get used or, or whatever the case may be. And, uh, but yet, it kind of loses that sense of undeserved uh, when you're writing down the list of things uh, that your parents or siblings or friends are going to buy for you. But Christmas, this story is not a story about something expected or deserved, but it is all of grace. And that's maybe the first and most important thing about Christmas. When we come to celebrate the truth of God taking on flesh and becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize that is an act of grace. It is a gracious thing. So for all of you who have uh, committed yourself to following Jesus Christ, you had the opportunity to do that because you are a favored one. You are a favored one. And this story shows us where that begins. Secondly, though, I want us to see that this is an unexpected recipient. Uh, first of all, Mary is from somewhere that is so obscure that Luke, in writing in great detail uh, to Theophilus, uh, his Greek reader, uh, the lover of God, he has to explain where Nazareth is. Notice in the sixth month, in verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, we, if you have heard this story uh, throughout your life, you're like, well, I know where Nazareth is. But the reality is in the Roman Empire, nobody knew where Nazareth was. 
Right. It's kind of like when some of you tell me where your cabin is off in the mountains and you name towns that I'm pretty sure do not exist. I mean, who would name a town in Colorado named Leadville or Divide? What is it, Divide? The continent, I, I'm assuming, but that may not be. It may be that two families got in a fight and said, this is, you can't come past the heat, this city, this little town, and I won't go past that town. I mean, I don't know. Somebody after the service will come and tell me where the name came from, which is what I love about you people, right? <laughs> but Nazareth, nobody knew. It was a town, according to archaeologists, that was at most maybe 500 people, carved into the rocky hills of the northern part of Israel, It was about 60 acres. I don't know how they know that, Uh, but that's what they tell me whenever I read about it. So this spot, this spot is unexpected. You would expect if something this glorious, this world-changing was going to happen, that it would happen in a world city, a world capital. But instead, this news comes in an obscure little place in a backwater part of Israel. But secondly, it comes to a very unexpected individual. Notice, this is, if you were to read through Luke, this is the second time an angel has showed up to say that someone was going to give birth to a child. The first time, uh, earlier in Luke chapter 1, is an angel comes and tells a priest uh, that he and his barren wife are going to have a child in their old age. We see the angel refer to that at the end of our text. And uh, this uh, priest is named Zechariah, and he's told that he is going to have a son who is going to be the forerunner of the king, the anointed one that God will send. And so that makes sense. It happened in Jerusalem. It happened in the temple. It happened to a prestigious religious leader. It happened to someone who probably had means and position. That makes perfect sense in so many ways. Uh, The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth having a child, even though they were barren in their old age, who will be special, echoes stories in the Old Testament, not the least of which would be Abraham and Sarah, who are told even though they're old, and as far as the world is concerned, they are way, 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 way too old to have a child, and they've never been able to, that God is going to give them a child. The Zechariah and Elizabeth story follows that pattern. The people you would expect here are getting this wonderful announcement. But the second story that Luke tells about an angel talking to someone about the birth of a child is completely different. One, the angel appears not in the city or the temple and not even to a man with importance and rank, but to a woman that nobody knows, and that is really not, in terms of the world's perspective, a very important person at all, and yet he comes to her. As a matter of fact, uh, one writer beautifully pointed out that in this story, Mary really does seem more like not Sarah from that old story in Genesis, but more like Hagar. And now for those of you who are my Bible nerds, you're like, what? Didn't we just go through Galatians and Hagar wasn't portrayed very well? But if uh, you remember the story, great. If you've never heard the story, here's the deal. Because Abraham and 
and uh, his wife Sarah were promised a child, and it was a little bit long in coming for their own preferences. They decided to take matters into their own hands, and Sarah said, look, if God's going to give you a child, why don't I give you my servant, Hagar, and you have a child through her? And uh, the problem is that when that process got underway and Hagar began expecting, she was expelled from the home of Abraham and Sarah. And really, that's where we see a similarity. Now, I know that uh, we live in a world where we might not think about this, but it was very, very unusual for a mother to be the person in charge of naming their child. That was the father's prerogative. And yet, this angel says something interesting. You are going to have a child, and you are going to give the child his name. And in that, it really does harken back to an angel who shows up to Hagar. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 11, an angel of the Lord said to her, that's Hagar, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. It's the only other time an angel shows up, tells a woman she's having a child, and tells her to name him. And perhaps this is just guys with too much time on their hand, thinking about Old Testament stories, but isn't it fascinating, the parallel? Here is Mary, unexpected recipient of grace, and the angel says, you are going to be unique, the outsider through whom God does a marvelous work. Oh, it is an unexpected recipient. But then thirdly, we need to look at the unending kingdom. Notice when the angel tells her uh, about this child that she is to name Jesus, who's, which means God saves. It's the same as the Old Testament Joshua. Uh, and, uh, and he tells her this. But notice the language that he uses about what will be true about this child. Verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now this language would not have sounded particularly unfamiliar to Mary. Why? Because over in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, this is what uh, we read. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of his father David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The angel is saying to Mary, this is the beginning of a kingdom that will never end. Everything that had been said through Isaiah is happening and it's going to happen through you. And isn't this just an extraordinary thing? 
uh, here when he says he will be great. Uh, when you see that word great in the Old Testament without a modifier, it is always referring to God. Uh, and then he says he will be called the Son of the Most High, which the Most High is an exalted reference to God himself. Uh, thirdly, he says that he will have the throne of his father David. He will be a king and not a normal king, but he will have an eternal kingdom. One both in time and space, it will have no end. Who can have a kingdom that is eternal? Only a king who is eternal. This is what the angel says. It's stunning. As he says, the words of Isaiah are coming true in you. Now, let's stop and uh, think about those last uh, two realities. One, when we come to Christmas, it's easy to forget uh, in the sentimentality of a baby. I was just telling uh, Andrew this morning, who had his little girl, uh, who's just a few months old with him, uh, that in my previous calling in Illinois, uh, there, I had an associate director of worship that kept her eye on all pregnant women uh, tracking them to see how close to the Christmas musical their child would be born. Her goal, a week. So if she could find a woman giving birth a week before the Christmas pageant, that was perfect. Because a child would be the perfect size for some 14, 15-year-old girl in the, the Christmas show to hold while she sang some song based on the Magnificat in Luke chapter 2. It's all great fun. Uh, Luke chapter 1, excuse me, it's right there. I'm looking at it. And uh, every year I would think, what will I do if that kid drops that baby? <laughs> I think every other mother in the place was thinking the same thing. But it didn't matter to, to, to Pam. Pam had just been tracking those women's pregnancy because she needed a star. And, uh, and sometimes when we see that, and I'll be honest, she did it, did it for good reason. When you see a 14-year-old holding a brand new pink little baby, you know, in front of a whole church full of people singing a song, it starts plucking those little strings that are left in your heart. I mean, there's not a dry eye in the place because we're sitting there and thinking like any logical person, look at the baby, Right? Look at the baby. And sometimes we come to Christmas and we look at the baby. Unfortunately, we're more like Ricky Bobby in uh, Will Ferrell's terrible movie about NASCAR, who prefers baby Jesus over the idea of any other kind of Jesus. And we get caught in that loop. Please don't go watch that movie. It's not a Christmas movie, uh, just to be clear. Unlike things like Die Hard, according to some of you. Don't watch that one either. Way too much language and violence. You know, I mean, we've got enough of that in our extended family gatherings. We don't need to watch a movie with that, right? You think I've lost it, but I haven't. Sometimes Christmas is all about the baby. But we need to understand that while this is a birth announcement that the angel is giving, it is not a normal baby. It is a king. And the king comes with implications. When the angel says this one will have an unending kingdom, it means that he deserves unending faithfulness. 
unending loyalty. To be honest, I think we like to think about Jesus as a baby because a baby can't demand a whole lot from us except uh, that we wake up and feed that child in the middle of the night or keep it clean in terms of its clothing. But a king can demand anything he wants from his subjects. And so this kingdom that is an unending means that the king has an unending right to ask of us, if you will, demand of us whatever he wants. That's the nature of an unending kingdom. And that is something helpful for us to recall as we think about this story. But fourthly, I want us to look at the unprecedented arrival. Now, I love uh, that Mary, uh, there in verse 34, uh, is aware of how babies normally come into the world. She is not taken by surprise. Now, I don't know at what age uh, little girls in Nazareth went through, you know, that whole uh, uh, special class in health, you know. Uh, when I was going through, we weren't old enough until we were like seventh or eighth grade. You know, when my kids went through school, it was fifth grade. I'm assuming now they do it in kindergarten. Uh, where they explain, you know, how babies come into the world. Mary had already gone through the class, right? And the angel said, you're going to have this child. This child is going to have an unending kingdom. And, and Mary has a really logical question to ask. Now, I know a lot of people look at this question and they say, is this Mary uh, not responding in faith? No, it means that Mary is thinking. She's thinking. Look, look at her question. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, I have a little number next to that in my Bible. And if I look down uh, all the way down at the bottom, it says literally, it says, how will this be since I do not know a man? Now, uh, Mary was engaged, so that word no doesn't mean I have no uh, association with a man. I've never met a man. This is saying I haven't what we like to call biblically known a man. She knows how it works. Parents have fun with that one later on, right? She knows how it works. And this is not an illogical question. In the Old Testament, God sometimes told prophets that a child was going to be born that was going to be special or have some special significance, and God was referring to a normal and natural process of that child being born. So when the angel says this child's going to be born and it's going to be a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, Mary's like, well, is that going to happen like in a normal, natural sort of sense? Or is it going to be something different? And what the angel says in response is, no, it's going to be completely unprecedented. It's going to happen in a way it's never happened before. Notice what he tells her. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I uh, was reading one old English preacher from the 19th century, and he said it is not healthy for us uh, to unduly spend times in speculation about how this worked. Well, let's at least think about it as much as the text tells us about it. Right? Let's not leave that on the table. So what is the first thing the angel says? This is going to be an intervention of the Spirit. Now, for us, sitting here in 
2023, almost 2024, when we hear the Spirit, we're of course used to the reference to the Spirit throughout the rest of the New Testament, much of which is written by the guy who wrote this uh, down for us, Luke, who also wrote the Acts, which should appropriately be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But here, this is before all of that, and the angel says that the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, it is easy for us to see that, and we just sort of hear a bell in the distance or smoke rolling across the stage, and we're like, what does that mean? And we don't need to be that way. We need to understand what the angel is saying. You see, there are times... The spirit and the idea of overshadowing has happened before. As a matter of fact, uh, the Greek word here is used uh, in a story in the book of Exodus. Back in Exodus chapter 40, uh, that word for overshadowed uh, is uh, a word that we see here in verse four, chapter 40, verse 35. Let me read the verse before. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is a story about when the people of God had finally built a place where they could come and meet with God called a tabernacle. And it was a tent that God had in the midst of all the tents that the people had. And it said that after they built it exactly the way it was supposed to be built, it said that God came and if you want to translate that word the same way that it's translated in Luke chapter 1, he overshadowed the tent. In other words, if we look back in Exodus 40, we see that the idea of the Spirit overshadowing is God's what's called Shekinah glory coming down in a very sensory way to let the people of God know that God was present with them. Now, doesn't that help you understand what the angel is saying? As a matter of fact, it's the same word that we see Luke use later in his story about Jesus when Jesus goes up to the top of a mountain with three of his disciples and it says that the Lord overshadowed them. It's the time when Jesus is transfigured and they see his glory like they had never seen it before but like they will for all eternity. In other words, it is the manifestation of the presence of God among his people. What the angel is saying to Mary, how will this happen? God's glory will overshadow you. In you will God come and be present not only to you, but to all of his people. You see, when we sing all these songs about Christmas, we need to remember that this celebration is a story of an un unprecedented arrival. It is the arrival of God's glory and its fullness itself in the person of Jesus Christ. There's one other time 
that we see the Spirit hanging around when something amazing happens. And it's in Genesis chapter 1, at the very beginning of the biblical story. It says that the Spirit was hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation. And perhaps there is a shout out to that as well, that what the angel is saying is God is going to begin a new creation in you. In you, the Spirit is at work like He was in the creation of all things, bringing God's glory into humanity in a new and unprecedented way. When God created humanity, uh, according to the story in Genesis 1 and 2, He created humanity from the dust of the earth. And He breathed into the nostrils this one that was made in the image of God. The angel Gabriel is saying God's going to do it one better. He's creating a new man from the presence of the glory of God in your womb. How will this happen? God's glory coming down upon you. Notice this is so special that the angel says explicitly (laughs) that it's this process, this unprecedented process uh, in verse 35. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Now, I know. That whenever Christian type people hear the word holy, you know, immediately the old song comes to our mind, you know, soprano voice, holy, holy, holy. Okay, that's very off pitch soprano voice, right? Y'all look a little sleepy. We have to wake you up every now and then, right? And we think of this word just with a, you know, holy, right? But holy means unique. It means different. It means set apart. It means special. What the angel is saying is there is no child more holy in all of human history than this child that God will give you. This child will be called holy because he is wholly unique and in a unique way can rightly be referred to as the Son of God. God himself in the flesh, completely unique. Oh, that is an extraordinary thing. I know. I know. It's, you say it's just a, come on, Chris, it's a story about a baby. It's not a story about any kind of baby you've ever met or seen. It's a holy baby that is unprecedented. But lastly, I want us to see that there is an unconditional response. It would be remiss for us not to look at how Mary responds to all this. Uh, her question has been answered. She knows how God's going to do this. She's heard about how special, unique, holy this child will be. And in verse 38, Mary's response is, Behold, I am the servant, literally the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, let me just say that this is really an unbelievable response. Uh, It's unconditional. Mary doesn't say, I'll do this if you give me a new horse. Donkey, car, house, right? She doesn't say, I'll do this if tomorrow morning, you know, when I wake up, you know, the blanket that's lying next to me is wet and the ground is dry or is dry and the ground is wet, you know. 
There's no need for God to walk her out and look up at the skies like he did with Abraham and say, look at the stars of the sky. If you could count them, so will your descendants be. And that was the third time that God had tried to give Abraham some reassurance that what he said was going to happen was going to happen. No, people who get these kind of announcements are usually like, well, so how can you prove this is going to happen? It had just happened earlier in this chapter when Zechariah, a priest in the temple of God, is like, well, how do I know this is going to happen? Because you're not going to be able to utter a word until it does. Mary doesn't have any of that. Mary's response is unconditional. Okay, if that's what God wants, then that's what I want. If that's what God wants, that's what I want. That's what she's saying. May it be to me as you have said. Wow, I love this because it's such a great encouragement, to be honest. It's a chastisement to all of us who claim to be subjects of this great king who was born. How often has God asked us to do something and we had a, well, maybe kind of response. Or if you show me, or if you do this, or if you somehow convince me kind of response rather than may it be to me. As you have said, it's our response to this king who was born, who is God in the glory of God in the flesh, is our response, whatever you want, whatever you ask, wherever you lead, I'm happy to follow. You see, that's the response of Christmas. I know some of you are here today uh, because you're here visiting a relative Uh, Maybe you live in town with your relative, and they said, look, just one Sunday, come on, please, come to church. I don't want you to come in and out of here without understanding what Christianity is about. Christianity isn't about the good feelings necessarily, even though there are plenty of good feelings. It's not about dressing up, even though, hey, when Sunday falls on Christmas Eve, we might dress up, right? I know some of you are thinking it'd be great if you wore a tie every week. You keep praying about that. (laughs) You say, well, Christianity really is just about something that makes you feel better. Let me be really honest about it. Christianity is something that often makes you feel terrible. Christianity is something that when you truly believe it, puts you in a terrible situation. Mary saying, may it be to me as you have said, is her accepting an unwed pregnancy in a traditional culture where she would be ostracized. And we know this because in Matthew's account, it tells us that her fiance was trying to get rid of her, to have nothing to do with her until an angel of the Lord came and told him about it. So what Mary was saying yes to was a very difficult life. A life where she would be made fun of. And we know this from the later stories of Jesus. There was always in the community around where Jesus grew up, this little jibe that they would throw in questioning the legitimacy of his birth. And you know that wasn't just directed at Jesus, but directed at his mother as well. Christianity is not about having an easy life. It's about having a life that responds to the generosity of God when he offers you something completely undeserved, which is peace with God, eternal life with him, joy everlasting. 
And he asked that you submit to his leadership and kingship and his unending kingdom. Christianity is about ending the reign of yourself and accepting the reign of the one who brought the glory of God into the womb of a woman in Nazareth to start a kingdom. Christianity is about recognizing that we are not the unending sovereign of our life or this world, but there is one who is. And he's given us an opportunity, not just to kind of get a pass, a day pass into his kingdom, but to be called his sons and daughters if we believe in him. But when we do, we step into a life that will bring all kinds of challenges and trouble. And like Mary, we say, may it be as you have said. Why? Because Jesus is more valuable than our comfort. Jesus is more glorious than our successes. Jesus is more satisfying than our pleasures. And so we say, I will say yes to Jesus and glad to say no to whatever else the world may offer because he is worth it. That is a story. Christmas. May God give us grace to enjoy it, whether for the first time or for the 80th time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness and grace. Lord, we know even as we sit here that we are undeserving of a gift so extraordinary. May we not be filled with self-pity, but may we be filled with gladness about receiving something that is so much greater than we could think or imagine. And may during this moment, this hour, this day, this season, may we embrace Jesus Christ as our King and God and gladly submit to whatever he knows is best for us. We need your spirit, just like the spirit enabled Jesus to be born in the womb of Mary. We need your spirit to enable us to know, love, and grow in Christ. Spirit, work in us even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.